1: The Partially Examined Life depends on your support. To find out how to do that in ways that are cheap or even free, go to PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash support.
2: You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 181 is something like, How much can people be blamed for their actions when the whole system they're a part of is corrupt? And read, Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil by Hannah Arendt from 1963. For more information and a link to the text, please check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, vitamin P deficient in Madison, Wisconsin.
3: This is Seth Paskin, frog-throated in Los Angeles. This is Wes Alwyn in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is Dylan
0: Casey
2: in Middleton, Wisconsin. Do you remember what vitamin P is from the text? No. I was just reminded of it just because it's on page one. It is what the Israelis call protection in government circles and the bureaucracy. I also got, there was a good
3: phrase somewhere in here, a bicycle rider. Do you remember what that means as a slur? You're such a bicycle rider. I do remember the saying. I don't recall the meaning. It means you uh, kowtow to your superiors and kick your subordinates. Ah, that's right. Yes.
0: Really? It feels a little lost in translation there.
2: <laughs> it does seem to uh, not uh, reflect well on bicycle riders. I, I don't know if I'd want that association. Can we say, make it like Segway riders or something like that? Something that will impugn a group that we have less sympathy to than the, the <laughs> hmm. healthy, environmentally conscious bicycle riders. So why did we read this? Wes, you suggested it at the time that we did. Tell us what immediately uh, prompted that. Well, what immediately
1: prompted it was that there was an article in the New York Times about a neo Nazi, I guess is the right way to put it. It was a profile of a neo Nazi as sort of an ordinary guy, you know, going with him on a trip to the grocery store and documenting his family life and things like that. And it produced a lot of outrage along uh, the sort of lines that we're very used to seeing these days. So there's talk of Normalizing being a Nazi and humanizing Nazis and how there's something wrong with that, and then I noticed that if you got on Twitter or you you looked around for any conversations about this, people were sort of preemptively arguing against the whole banality of evil angle, you know so if the author of the article had said, "Look, I'm just illustrating the dangers of this sort of thing it's actually your next door neighbor, no matter how how normal and how nice they might seem might." Have these sorts of opinions, and it's worth knowing that. You know, I saw comments to the effect that, well, yes, we all know about the banality of evil, and we don't need to be reminded of that. I don't think many people talked in detail about Arendt and the banality of evil, but I know I had seen articles to the effect that it wasn't really properly understood, and I know we wanted to do some more Arendt, so I really wanted to get into the details of just what she meant by that and whether our popular conception of that is a misunderstanding.
2: Well, Seth, you said you'd read this a couple times before. Do you want to give us some background or your experience with the book?
3: Okay. Well, I read it of my own volition, I want to say, when I was still in college. And then I read it again when I was in graduate school. And then I read it once more, maybe about a decade ago. Part of it was, out of my own curiosity, being Jewish and sort of part of my own intellectual engagement with my quote-unquote tradition or my history. But the other part is that I seem to recall that during the 1980s, when what constituted a classical education or the classical canon came up, so Bloom, right, when Bloom wrote The Closing of the American Mind, this book was part of the conversation. And it was part of the conversation because it was written by a woman who was also a philosopher. It was part of the conversation because it was controversial in its time because the theses challenged kind of our standard understanding of what constituted normal. It was also part of a curriculum that I followed for a couple of years around Holocaust studies. And so it has a tremendous amount of interest. And as we saw from our previous Hannah Arendt readings, she's also a tremendous writer, a very sharp thinker and social critic, And so I wanted to engage with the book, I guess, for my own edification. It's also one of those things where, at least in my circles, the title itself, Eichmann in Jerusalem, right? What is it a study of the banality of Edel? That phrase is a cultural touchstone for us. It's a meme in our culture. And I wanted to understand what that meant. I liked it as much this time as I have every other time I've read it. And
2: am I right that when this came out... It was very controversial and condemned by some Jewish groups that it wasn't taking the Israeli line. It's a report on the trial of Eichmann that took place in Israel. This is after Nuremberg. He couldn't be found for Nuremberg. He was hiding out in Argentina. But when the state of Israel was very firmly established, he was found in Argentina, and they kidnapped him and brought him to trial. And this is a Arendt's commentary, originally written for The New Yorker, but then expanded a little to make the book, on how the trial went but it doesn't really go into detail. You know, we don't hear the statements of a lot of the witnesses or anything, and it's fairly critical of the way, in particular, the prosecutor as representing Ben-Gurion, the Prime Minister of Israel at the time, his reasons for having the trial, it certainly, she characterized it as having aspects of a show trial, not that it was a, a sham, that the verdict was already determined beforehand, and, you know, that it was just purely, like, she really was complimentary of the judges really trying to restrict themselves to administering justice to this individual, but certainly the amount of evidence that was admitted, there was a lot of purposes ulterior to simply finding the guilt of this one person. It was meant to be presented to the world that Israel can do this thing, has the jurisdiction, has the independence, finally the Jews can have a nation to prosecute based on their interests, and then also to remind young Jews and everybody else of, of exactly how horrible the Holocaust was. It was pro-Zionist, that Jews need to be militant in resisting this kind of thing in the future, and that, in fact, the Zionists who had been taking this harder line earlier on, so it was, it was kind of critical. And then some of what we read was, in fact, mischaracterizing Arendt's positions regarding some aspects of Jewish resistance or Jewish collaboration with the Nazis, etc., But despite that initial controversy, am I right that this is more, as you say, Seth, kind of part of the conversation now that this book is actually revered as a necessary, like actually understanding that somebody like Eichmann was not terribly uncommon, that he was not like a sadist out there making his own law, that he was just a cog in the machinery, that that's actually a really necessary lesson that we need to make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen again.
3: Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, she wrestles with a couple of parallel themes. And for the listeners, this is definitely it's a long book, but it's not a difficult read unless you have trouble with the content and the stories about, you know, what was happening. So, you know, she's making the point that the purpose of a trial is to determine the guilt or innocence of the person on trial. And in that respect, Eichmann's guilt as a participant had been firmly established and documented because this was 12 years after the war. Is that right? That he was kidnapped. So, you know, she's making the point that the purpose of the trial was not to determine whether he was guilty or innocent. The purpose of the trial was just, as you said, to make a statement to the world specifically that immediately after the war, when the Nuremberg trials happened, And some follow-on trials of war criminals, they took place in the countries where those crimes occurred and were adjudicated by, in the case of Nuremberg, the International Tribunal of the Victor Nations, and in the case of the follow-on trials, the legal systems inside of the individual countries. And at the time, the Jews didn't have a state, so they weren't in a position to actually have a trial themselves and meet justice, as it were, against any of the perpetrators of the crimes against them. So she was claiming the purpose of this trial was not to determine Eichmann's guilt. The purpose of the trial was to show the world that Israel had the right and the ability as a state to have this kind of a legal proceeding to accomplish the same task that the Nuremberg trials and the other trials did. Now that having been said with respect to Eichmann in particular, he was somewhat different than the people who were tried at Nuremberg because he was not a high party official. He was not a general. He was not a minister or anything like that. But the perception was that he was the mastermind behind the final solution. And what she does in the course of the book is point out that A, he was not the mastermind, he wasn't in a position to make those kinds of decisions. In fact, just as you mentioned, Mark. The issue was that he just did what he was told because he was trying to advance his career. And it was this sense in which he divorced his moral faculty or his conscience from what was actually occurring. The the two issues are, one, that individuals can do this, but more importantly, that an entire civilization, namely Western civilization, did this very thing. So the collapse was not He was only indicative of the collapse of the entire moral order, first in Germany and then of the entirety of Western Europe, Eastern and Western Europe, the Eastern states. Once they started collaborating with and then ultimately were annexed by Germany, they more than enthusiastically participated in sending their Jews off to the gas chambers as well. And the Western countries that knew that this was happening didn't take actions to stop it immediately. And so her question in this book is, how do we understand the complete collapse of two thousand years of development of culture and morality as personified by this one person and identify that the collapse itself is due just to the fact that people refuse to think or are unable to think? Yeah, there's
1: a defect in Eichmann's thinking in particular, specifically his what he calls his inability to think from the standpoint of someone else, which we should get into later. I wanted to back up to her problems, which is the bulk of chapter one, House of Justice. So her problem with the very idea of a show trial and the very idea of raising these larger questions, even though she addresses them in the book, is contrary to procedural justice in the strict sense. So she says, so I'm quoting from the chapter one now, justice demands that the accused be prosecuted, defended, and judged, and that all the other questions of seemingly greater import of how could it happen And why did it happen, of why the Jews, and why the Germans, of what was the role of other nations, and so on, be left in abeyance? So moving down a little bit, on trial are his deeds, not the sufferings of the Jews, not the German people or mankind, not even anti-Semitism and racism. Whereas, she says, the case itself, the trial, was built on what the Jews had suffered, not on what Eichmann had done, which in her mind is deviation from the question of justice. And then there's another great metaphor she uses. A trial resembles a play and that both begin and end with the doer, not with the victim. And if he suffers, he must suffer for what he has done, not for what he has caused others to suffer. So I wanted to sort of emphasize that assumption of hers, because I think it will probably conflict with the intuitions of a lot of listeners these days, We discussed a very similar thing on the Nussbaum episode, which is to say that justice, strictly speaking, is not about victims. It doesn't exist to satisfy victims. It used to be, right? It used to be more tribal in that sense or based on an honor system, let's say, where if you'd hurt someone or killed someone, their family might take vengeance on you or something like that. It was built more on the model of individual vengeance. But in this case, justice is there to meet The demands of society, which, uh, aren't necessarily the same as the demands of the victims.
0: Yeah. And I wanted to also emphasize that that characteristic of it being a report. She talks about this in the postscript, which is written after the first edition is done, where she sort of reflects a little bit on the reception of the book. But in some ways, to me, the brilliance of the book is that it is a report of things more or less directly related to Eichmann and the circumstances of his guilt and thinking about what kind of man he is and how he came to be. And in that way, it, it, there's a lot of facts in the book. In fact, it's all the more horrible because of all the facts. But it's not a giant eye view of big topics like how did this happen to the Germans or how did the Germans do this or Jewish history or anything like that. And to the extent it has psychology in it, it's really
1: thinking about Eichmann's psychology. Yeah, she does say that the trial, it was an opportunity to understand Eichmann and his motivations and the implications of those motivations. And by making it a show trial and making him a monster, it passed up that opportunity. And so she takes that opportunity in this book, and it's of course something that created a huge controversy and got her in a lot of trouble. The nineteen sixties variations of you know people accusing her of normalizing the terrible and the, the atrocious. And yeah, I didn't find
0: myself feeling it was very normalized, but maybe it's a different time. You know, I'm far enough away from it. It was one of the most horrifying things I've ever read in my life.
1: Yeah, the same reaction. It's actually was very difficult to read for me and very depressing. Yes.
2: Thank you for that holiday reading there, Wes. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> I gave up pretty early in terms of actually reading it, and I had to get an audio because I just knew that I wasn't going to be enjoying this book enough to like just power through it during my vacation. So by getting an audio book and listening to it at 1.5 speed, I was able to get a pass through. There's just something so wrong about that. <laughs> But there are large sections of it that are of historical interest, but are not chock full of philosophy.
1: So I found the history fascinating and and addicting, really. And I actually had trouble
2: putting the book down, as depressing as it was. I think you, as a philosopher, if you really wanted to get at the nub of this, just a couple of the chapters, just the beginning and the end, and there's a couple of chapters in the middle about the final solution itself. So chapters six through eight, I would say, would talk more directly about Eichmann's sense of responsibility or lack thereof. So chapter eight is called Duties of a Law-Abiding Citizen, where he even name drops Kant. And the, the fact that he was consistently doing his duty and even is able to give to the judge, the judge kind of follows up on this, some version that sounds accurate of the first formulation of the categorical imperative Right. That he was not undermining the society in which he was a part. He was not like a thief who, if everybody stole, then property wouldn't be possible. No, he was within his environment. He claimed that he was doing his duty the best that he could. And in fact, they point out that he was not just following orders. This is, you know, what was claimed by a lot of the Nuremberg defendants. And, you know, there's some of that in here, but a key point in the plot. So there's a lot of discussion of the logistics, the structure of of the German government at the time, and how the expulsion of the Jews worked differently in different countries. Like a lot of that, as far as the philosophical content, you could skip. But getting at this particular incident where Himmler, his immediate, uh, well, two levels superior to him, had, as it was becoming clear that Germany was going to lose, ordered the that the final solution stop. And at this point... Eichmann went against the explicit orders sort of on the grounds of what would the Fuhrer actually want? What was his true duty? Yes. What was his true duty? So he was like, you know, being super zealous in following his duty by going ahead with some additional deportation. You know, even though the trains were all broken down, he ordered some marshes of, you know, so this is like the thing that he was kind of most directly responsible for in terms of his own initiative. He wasn't just following orders and wasn't claiming that. I should say, I think
1: that chapters two through seven are also just, they're focused, you know, principally on Eichmann and Eichmann's motivations. And I see chapter eight as sort of a climax before she goes into many of the details about deportations in chapters nine through 13 before coming back to the trial. We're focused on the trial, but the climax here is that regardless of what you think about Eichmann having been a cog in the machine, there's a certain point in 1944. When his boss, Himmler, well, his boss's boss, let's say Himmler, is basically saying, break off all the sending of Jews to extermination camps. We got to stop this. We got to think about how we're going to negotiate with the Allies once they take over, because everyone had seen the writing on the wall. And I think the way it's characterized in this chapter is not that Eichmann was going above and beyond what Hitler wanted. He was going above and beyond what Himmler wanted because he. He was reading what the Fuhrer wanted. And so there wasn't a lot of paper trail. There wasn't a lot of evidence of Hitler explicitly putting it down as a law that you shall deport Jews to the extermination camps. But for Eichmann, he kind of knew everyone knew what Hitler wanted and they acted on that. And even after everyone else had stopped acting on that, he continued to act on that principle. And that's the sense in which he thought of himself as a Kantian, following his duty, even after everyone else had stopped following their duty and was simply thinking pragmatically about what was going to happen after the end of the war. And one of the interesting things, by the way, when he's asked to formulate the categorical imperative, or I think he actually just does it spontaneously, he accurately characterizes Kant's categorical imperative. And a rant's analysis goes underneath that to say, well, he's not acting on the categorical imperative as such, but this bastardization of it to mean act in such a way that the Fuhrer, if he knew your action, would approve it.
2: Yeah, we should clarify that the thing that he was most involved with, the thing that he was accused of, was transportation. That he didn't run any of the camps himself. He was directly responsible for
1: one camp, the uh, Theresienstadt. Is that Theresienstadt? Yeah, yeah. But that was sort of a show camp for the Red Cross and. The most privileged Jews went there. It wasn't a regular camp, but he was actually technically directly responsible for that one okay. camp. It wasn't an
2: extermination camp or a work camp. It made clear that he it wasn't just the fact that he couldn't be found that he wasn't tried at Nuremberg, because some people were tried in absentia and sentenced to death. So he was just not in the position where he was so obviously directly responsible. So the, a lot of the argument was, well, you were in charge of transportation. You knew what would happen to these people if you successfully did your job and transported them, expelled them to where they were going. So that's enough to make you responsible, even though you know, he tells a story about how he was shown around one of the death camps and he couldn't take it. He did not have a strong enough stomach for this. You know, this is, of course, just his words. Who knows if this is actually true, but he you know, from the beginning was willing to confess, according to a ranch, quite a lot, and was just like, isn't that enough to hang me? Like, I'll hang myself in public if you want. Like, it's fine. Which I find a little hard to uh, line up with his reaction, which I watched on this PBS special, Wes, you'd sent around, about the trial itself, and it shows part of his at least reports on his words after he was convicted. He was convicted of all the counts. And he said, yeah, you know, this is a travesty of justice. And I, so he wasn't at that point willing to just like, oh, yeah, I was involved in something evil. I sure should die for that, which is how Arendt characterizes him as at least how he behaved in the interviews before trial.
1: Yeah, she makes note of the fact that there's a conflict between what he said before trial, the comment about hanging himself, and then his feeling at the end of the trial, which is that it was an injustice. She mentions his plea for clemency. So, you know, in the beginning, he was sort of the a of about repentance is for children and blah, blah, blah. And then he writes this plea for clemency, which was sealed actually until 2016. So I actually went online and read that plea for clemency. And it's the same sort of thing. I didn't do these things. I wasn't responsible. He didn't pull any triggers. So he was really responsible for different things at different times during the war. In the beginning, it was so-called emigration. You know, Jews were forced, scared, of course. Well, forced immigration is a different stage. So early on, it's still forced. You're right, Seth, in some sense, because it's based on fear but he facilitated emigration
2: and worked with Zionists he respected the Zionists in terms of yeah the Jewish question the Jewish problem means they can't live here anymore and so here the Zionists are coming forward and saying you know have them come down to a new state down here and so he respected those people according to his words and actively worked with them to try to
1: and even went to visit that, that to was a Palestine solution. and learned a smattering of Hebrew and thought of himself as a Zionist, read the landmark Zionist text, which, you know, of course, all of this is part of his blindness, right? There are people who are fearful and they're being persecuted, and that's why they're emigrating in large part. Some of it is straightforward Zionism or it's a mixture, but he thinks of himself as doing a good deed here. Later on, it becomes forced deportation and concentration of Jews in ghettos for the purpose of deporting them to other areas in the future. And then in 1941, you know, 1939, really things begin. But explicitly in 1941, it becomes the final solution where he knows he's deporting people to death camps, basically. And there's no doubt he didn't deny knowing that. He knew what he was doing when he put people on trains, he was sending people to their deaths. So that's the sense in which he was implicated and involved. So when he, in the beginning of the trial, his plea is not guilty in the sense of the indictment. And Arendt reflects a little bit about what that means. And for his defense lawyer, Savadius, it means Savadius wants to make this argument that in a way these are acts of state. They weren't illegal under Hitler's regime. And so he can't be, Eichmann can't be prosecuted for something that wasn't essentially illegal. For Eichmann, it just means that it was aided and abetted murder that he wasn't the actual murderer. And that was a very important distinction to Eichmann. And that was the, the sort of thing that had him feeling like this was all in great injustice. He never actually went up to someone and shot them or pulled a lever to release gas or something like that.
2: I guess another one of the things that Arendt was criticized for was essentially spreading the guilt around, that it wasn't just the German soldiers and German citizens, and she considers Could he have made a defense that if he hadn't gone along with this, his life would have been in imminent danger and concludes that that's not the case, that there are actually plenty of officers that it would have been a matter of switching to a a different high-paying job. It was just a matter that success was defined in that structure as doing what Eichmann was trying to do. This is one of the most interesting parts of
0: her discussion and his psychology, making the point that you know that defense that within the nazi regime it was so brutal that anybody who participated and if they deviated they would be considered traitors and strung up or, or killed or essentially they were pulling a trigger because they had a gun to their heads and she makes the point that as mark just said that is simply not true that you could just refuse to participate you could get a transfer you could say well i don't like this kind of work and there's this kind of Deeply horrifying aspect of it just being a corporation. And if you didn't like doing some of the work, if you didn't like working downstairs, you could just transfer somewhere else. And in Eichmann's case is that he had a sense not just of duty, but of bureaucratic achievement. And he wanted to excel and and get the accolades of excelling as a bureaucrat. That's why he didn't want to leave. He wanted to do a good job and get promoted and make a little bit more money and was irritated about not getting promoted and would essentially stand around the water cooler and talk to people about how he deserved to get another promotion.
1: Yeah. His, the words he uses are at that idea that he quit his job basically and take another job, which would ultimately mean a demotion. But as Rent mentions, There's no evidence that anyone was ever imprisoned or executed for saying, I don't want to be part of an execution squad, or I don't want to be part of the bureaucratic mechanisms that are getting millions of people killed. There's no evidence that anyone was ever punished. But anyway, he thinks of it as quote-unquote inadmissible, and nobody acted that way, says Eichmann, and it would be unthinkable to quit his job. What's really interesting about all that is Arendt makes a lot of the fact that Look, Eichmann was this lower middle class guy. He had been basically a traveling salesman and he got that job because of, of the connections of Jewish members of his family. And even that wasn't going well. And sort of being a Nazi was sort of the first, other than being a Freemason, which didn't work out, it really allowed him to start over and and start a successful career. And for him, just a taste of that, pursuing that successful career was everything and that motivation was exacerbated by class differences and the the sense that in many ways he was the social inferior of a lot of people around him and he wanted to live up to whatever the prevailing values and sense of what was respectable in that society because of his situation he was a extraordinary conformist and if the entire world you know in his world in germany and the third reich if the whole project was to exterminate jews his conscience wasn't going to reject that because his conscience was entirely tied up in approval from superiors and respectability and all that stuff his whole devotion to hitler by the way was made worse by the fact that hitler was also a bumpkin essentially who became powerful and eichmann identified with him he loved it he was the lance corporal who became the fuhrer yeah exactly Um, So that class thing, I think, is interesting, especially in light of our our episode on Orwell, where Orwell emphasizes the fact that totalitarianism is sort of the cancerous growth of this sort of idea of status and respectability. If you remember, he claims that the source of totalitarianism will be middle class, upper middle class and upper middle class bureaucrats who are essentially meritocrats and careerists. Totalitarianism is just the logical final result of that hierarchy. Not the necessary logical result, but the worst possible case of the growth of that hierarchy into something
2: terrible. Let's say a dialectical variation, it's just to give it a fancy name, not the logical result.
0: I was just thinking that part of that horribleness is even though Hitler is behind it, and in the case of Eichmann, his own sense of duty. As we talked about earlier is tied up with how he understands like what the real law of the land is. It's also the case that there is this bureaucratic mechanism is a kind of faceless state of an entity of nobody and are write gestures to this at the end of the book. And I wanted to hear her talk more about it, but that part of what's going on and, and what the discussion that would be profitable off of her book would be the dangers of that government of nobody in a bureaucracy in which someone like Eichmann basically says he isn't responsible because, in some sense, nobody's responsible because there isn't anybody who is identified as running something. There's an aspect of it that there is a machine that's just moving along and people are doing what the activities of just making the machine run. Yeah, right. There are exceptions. The chapter chapter 7 of the Wannsee Conference, which Uh, just as an aside this whole first eight chapters that we referred to you know my understanding of the mechanics and and how the holocaust happened in sort of step-by-step manner i didn't know any deep details on it and these eight chapters for me were the most intricate detailed history of How the practical logistics of it, not in the sense of just necessarily transporting people and stuff like that, but the mechanism that made that happen, and in particular, the Wannsee Conference, where you have this group of high-ranking national socialists and then also in the German government separately— get together and work out the logistics of the final solution. Like, who's going to make sure the trains run on time? Who's going to arrange for the soldiers to get fed? I mean, all those things, which just imagining that room and that conversation, after which they have drinks, that was probably the most horrifying part of the whole book for me.
3: So the philosophical characterization of what Dylan just mentioned, this idea that there's an agentless state I guess you could say. And there's a lot that's to the mechanics of that. The first is that the Nazis invented a language for describing this, the final solution, which took the sting out of the actual saying the words like gassing or killing or organized emigration and whatever. And they had a whole nomenclature of the way they spoke about it in very neutral terms, right? So to begin with, the original characterization way back when, even before Hitler came to power, was the Jewish question, right? Which already makes ambiguous what it is that's being described. But so there's a way that they spoke about it so that people would not, they would take the sting out of the conscience as they were working through the mechanics. And then there was the fact that the intent that came directly from Hitler was often, Hitler's instructions were verbal. So there's this complicated system where Hitler speaks and then his agents and ministers and whatever actually enact legislation or, or rules or whatever about how things are going to be done. So there's this way in which it all points back to Hitler, but Hitler, did, there was no written record, so to speak, of his accountability. But the way that Arendt characterizes what you're describing is... I don't remember whether Eichmann uses the term idealist or if she introduces it, but she talks about the, an idealist as being somebody who's willing to sacrifice people for an idea. It's the way that she characterizes Eichmann. It's the way he thinks of his relationships
1: with the Jewish Zionist. representatives, the Zionists that he's dealing with. He thinks of them, hey, these guys, are, they're idealists just like me. You're prepared to sacrifice everything and everybody to this idea, to this ideal. That's chapter three.
0: Yeah, it's on page 41, and it's Eichmann who talks of himself as an idealist. Though, Arendt puts the word idealist in quotes all the time.
3: (laughs) Yes, yeah, exactly. So it's this idea that he has fidelity to the idea of solving the Jewish question, because that's critical to the future of Europe and the Reich, as far as he's told. And so everything subordinates itself to the accomplishment of that particular task or the realization of that idea. And I think part of what Arendt's question in the book is, do you remember when we we read, was it Simone de Beauvoir Mm -hmm. that talked about... The serious men. The serious men, right. The question I think in some sense can be formulated is Arendt saying, How is it possible, we think of people who are willing to sacrifice, you know, you think of Hitler as being the one who could sacrifice others for an idea, but how is it that millions and millions of people were persuaded to that way of thinking and started essentially through ignorance, and I don't mean ignorance like through avoidance, became complicit in sacrificing people to an idea instead of just being able to weigh on the other side the actual grounded reality of the human beings that they knew. As she says in the book, everybody had their good Jew, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody says, yeah, we have to solve the Jewish question, but my neighbor, you know, fought in World War I. He's one of the good ones, right? And so the part of the question is, how is that relationship, that actual concrete human relationship, outweighed by subordination to this abstract idea that permits you to just Essentially, wipe away your conscience. So, I think abstraction is the key. The willingness to think in generalities.
1: So, this sort of relates to Arendt's theory of judgment, which we've gotten a little bit of at various places. She sort of hints at it a little bit at the end of this book, but doesn't discuss it with a lot of explicitness. But the idea is that there's a sort of a kind of judgment that doesn't simply subsume particulars under a universal that pays attention to the particular. And in the case of thinking about human beings, does this by allowing us to imaginatively occupy other people's perspectives, which she called going visiting. And by the way, she relies on a lot of Kant for a lot of this, and she's thinking about his reflective judgment in particular, which we associate with aesthetic judgment, but she's broadening that. So This idea of being able to think from the standpoint of someone else by the exercise of imagination, which is not just to say empathize with them, but really think about the possible judgments of others in any given situation. Instead of subsuming particulars under some universal category, thinking of all the different perspectives one might have on that. And that's what she accuses Eichmann of not being able to do, right? He has a defect in thinking. That, and his defect in thinking is a defect in thinking from the standpoint of other people. And she says it's reflected in his language and in the sort of language rule set that you mentioned and the cliches he uses. Basically, there are a lot of these mechanisms that impair people's ability to make these judgments, impair people's ability to think. That's the sort of novel, interesting take she has on this. It's not that. Eichmann became a bloodthirsty murderer. It's that his ability to think was impaired by several different factors, and we should discuss at some point the whole Eichmann's use of cliches and the way they would put him in this ebullient mood. And because I think that's a really important component of this.
3: Yeah, I do want to just kind of add one point here that I'm hoping this will connect back. So. When you think back now on the Jewish philosophers that we've read, so we've read Maimonides, we read Buber, we've read Levinas, and... Spinoza. Spinoza. (laughs) Sorry. It's funny that I don't think of Spinoza as a Jew that way, but dialectically, I think he was. But this notion of the individual and the particular versus the abstract and the general. So... Arendt diagnoses this idealism, this sacrificing of the individual to an idea as part of the problem. And if you think back on Levinas, for example, let me connect this to what Wes just said. He's talking about Eichmann having no conscience, right? That he just, there was no evidence of conscience. But part of the question is, was there anybody who was external to Eichmann who said, oh my God, that challenged the conscience, right? Is there any external either societal or superego or parental or some kind of external conscience that would hold him in check. And part of the argument for the defense is there was no external conscience, right? That Because there was nobody in society telling him that he was doing something wrong. He couldn't judge that he was doing something wrong. But if you think and connect this back to the idea of I and thou or Levinas's responsibility in the face of the other, the individual themselves carries with them the weight Of conscience. So, just your interaction with another individual should be sufficient to generate the sense of responsibility or external conscience that's required for you to recognize their humanity, if you will, or recognize their dignity or what have you. And so, with the exception maybe of Spinoza, all the Jewish thinkers and in the Jewish intellectual tradition is skeptical of the abstract, it's skeptical of generalization precisely because it contains within it the seeds of, for lack of a better word, politically totalitarianism and morally, right, cruelty and that sort of thing. So I'm hoping that through this reading, you guys are getting that connection. And this has kind of been a thread that weaves back through and it informs my kind of view of the world, why I'm less interested in ontology and metaphysics and more interested in this kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, and Eichmann's cliches are a preeminent example of generalization, of the inability to think in concrete terms, and what she calls stock phrases, which defended Eichmann against reality and the consciousness of his self-deception. So a lot of this has to do with his view of Jews as sort of his respectable enemies. They're on the same level as him, and it's just we were enemies, we respected each other, we went to battle, I lost, touche, please forgive me and let's move on, something like that. And even his way, the way he prided himself on his relationships with certain Jewish representatives, you know, for instance, the guy he went to visit in the concentration camp, Dr. Storfer is his name. Storfer tried to run and he ended up in a concentration camp and appealed to Eichmann for help. And Eichmann went and said things like, well, we had this normal human encounter, and said to Storfer, we certainly got it. What rotten luck. And then he said, it was a great inner joy to me that I could at least see the man with whom I had worked for so many long years, and that we could speak to each other. These are the sort of stock phrases that Eichmann is prone to, including the story that he is sort of this unfortunate guy, and that if he just unloads this tale of misfortune to his Israeli captors, They're actually going to sympathize with him. It's these sorts of examples where Rent really goes concretely into his way of thinking that's very telling. So, this idea that he was pulling together with the Jews, for instance, that they were sort of his comrades during the assisted emigration part of things, just this inability to think of it from their perspective where I'm afraid I need to get out of here and not. Hey, I'm going to Eichmann, my buddy, so we can accomplish this project together, and isn't it gonna be great? Which is Eichmann's absurd way of understanding
2: it. See, I'm wondering about the connection between the stock phrases things as sort of not thinking at all and having a different narrative. Certainly the stock phrases serve this narrative of picturing himself as this hard luck case, you know, just trying to get on in his environment and Page 105 to 106, the Final Solution chapter, she goes into some of the things that Himmler would say in his speeches to justify, to tell the story of where they were, what they were doing. To have stuck it out and apart from exceptions caused by human weakness, to have remained decent, that is what has made us hard. This is a page in the glory of our history, which has never been written and which is never to be written. Or, in order to solve the Jewish question, this was the most frightening order an organization could ever receive. Or... We realize that what we are expecting from you is to be superhumanly inhuman. She goes on, a little lower. It is noteworthy that Himmler hardly ever attempted to justify in ideological terms, and if he did, it was apparently quickly forgotten. What stuck in the minds of these men who had become murderers was simply the notion of being involved in something historic, grandiose, unique, a great task that occurs once in 2,000 years, which must therefore be difficult to bear. This was important because the murderers were not sadists or killers by nature, On the contrary, a systematic effort was made to weed out all those who derive physical pleasure from what they did. Hence the problem was how to overcome not so much their conscience as the animal pity by which all normal men are affected in the presence of physical suffering. The trick used by Himmler, who apparently was rather strongly afflicted with these instinctive reactions himself, was very simple and probably very effective. It consisted in turning these instincts around, as it were, in directing them towards the self, so instead of saying, what horrible things I did to people, the murderers would be able to say, what horrible things I had to watch in the pursuance of my duties, and how heavily the task weighed upon my shoulders.
1: Yep. So, really good example of the failure of judgment here, and the way it can be deformed or, or impaired, or I don't, I don't know what a good word for it is, but through this reversal of pity.
0: Well, and it's also not normalizing the activity of the killing, but actually acknowledging that it's not normal but then appealing to a super normal time that you're you're being asked to do something that you're right your inner instincts are that this is terrible and this is wrong and the way you're going to get around it is hold on to something like your duty or whatever that you know tough things have to be done in order to get to the other side kind of thing yeah
3: so a couple things about this the first thing is is that what underwrites this is this kind of religious fervor that was associated with you know this wasn't simply nationalism in the sense of do this for germany right the third reich was to be the thousand year reich so all of this had to be done to establish the thousand year reich which was a religious mission almost it's not as simple as appealing to some extra normal commitment to what we might consider to be a normal instinct, like fidelity to family or community, right? Because it wasn't even fidelity to Germany as a nation. It was fidelity to the Fuhrer who is really channeling the establishment of this thousand-year Reich. Here's the process. You're going to acknowledge that the act is morally bankrupt or corrupt or evil or wrong, but you claim that it needs to be done in the service of something else. And then you come up with a language and a process that systematizes the prosecution of those actions that allows you to divorce yourself from agency. And so when you think about at each stage of that process, how it would be possible to get there, if you think of yourself as an individual, how could I stand by or even participate in doing something that I know was wrong well, the first is you'd have to have the conviction that doing it was for some kind of a greater good. And in this case, it's not simply because Germany needs it to defend its borders. It's because you're doing something that is unprecedented and you know, will have massive historical ramifications. And then it can't be that it's left to your direct agency where you're constantly having to make judgments and be faced with the reality of what you're doing. It has to be systematized in such a way that you can participate and essentially divorce yourself as an agent from the actual actions. That sounds like a good way to end part one of the discussion. Folks can come back and listen to part
2: two where we can go a little more off the rails. We've, we've been very successful in not relating this to contemporary events anytime in the first half here, but there's still more good stuff to get out of this book and then we can do some little more freeform thinking about it. Come back next week or get the partially examined life citizen edition by becoming a member at our site, partially right now. Either way is fine.